All right, well, this morning I think it's safe to say uh, that we live in a world with pleasures of all kind on tap. For instance, the last time you probably felt bored, uh, you knew that there were all kinds of amusing things within driving distance away from you. The last time you felt lonely, you knew that you could call or text a friend at a moment's notice and probably satisfy that itch for relationships. And if you don't feel like cooking a meal at any given point of the day, you can just run over to Chick-fil-A like me. Except, of course, on Sundays, because, well, they're closed on Sundays for whatever reason. But while all these momentary pleasures that we just have, that can come to the aid of our boredom at a moment's notice, whether it be our boredom or our loneliness or our own tiredness, what of any of these things can truly satisfy our souls? None of them, of course. Nothing but the sheer communion with God himself the one who made us, the one who loves us, as we've been proclaiming all throughout this service so far. For who else but God and God alone can stand with us in the darkest of nights? Who else stands ready at all times to speak to us through his word and by his spirit? And who else is always ready and even eager to share with us every word that proceeds from his own mouth to our listening ears? Well, this morning we will see here in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, as we continue on in our series, how the church here was made to become more and more aware of this sense of communion or fellowship with God. And the vehicle that drove them to this place of knowing communion with God all the more was nothing short of suffering. See, what's curious here is that James, in our context the apostle, the brother of John, had just been executed. And Peter himself was next on the list. And so all the church could do in this moment of affliction and tiredness was call it to God through prayer. So let's go ahead, if you haven't already, and turn with me in your copy of God's word to Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, as we read from the word of the living God, whose word is faithful and true and given to us in love. The Holy Scripture says this, Acts 12, starting in verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but notice this, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Well, speaking of a praying church, let's go ahead and as a church now, come to God in prayer and ask for him to bless this time as we look more closely at his word. Let's do that. Father in heaven, we recognize that this time is all for you. And so, Father, we ask that as your word has been read, may we have ears to hear, eyes to see the risen Christ, and hearts that are so receptive to hear the truth of the gospel this morning as it's spoken over us from your word to our ears and to our hearts. Lord God, we ask that Jesus himself would be magnified, that I myself would get out of the way, and that I would merely be an instrument of your mercy in your own hands for the good and for the welfare of your people. And so we pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.
<clears throat> well, friends, this morning I want us to consider, <clears throat> again, this truth of communion with God, this doctrine, if you will, of fellowship with God himself. And the truth that is also in your bulletins, this big idea that I want us to be focusing on this morning, <clears throat> is this right here, that communion with God is experienced through a life of prayer. See, here in our text, we will most visibly see a praying church, especially there in verse 5, as we just read. But we're also about to see, behind the scenes, a praying Christ, one who always is interceding for us. And so those will be our two points for the morning, a praying church and a praying Christ. Now, if you recall from last week, the church in Jerusalem itself had been through this whole roller coaster of emotions, if you will. See, earlier in Acts chapter 11, we saw that um, the Gentiles there in Antioch were coming to the faith in droves. But then shortly after, what happened? The church in Jerusalem received news that this famine was coming. And so they went from feeling at the top of the world, wow, the Lord is doing this magnificent work, to all of a sudden, woe is us. Are we even going to survive in the midst of this giant famine? Well, then what happened? The church in Antioch sent relief to this church in Jerusalem. And so I can imagine that they were back again on cloud nine, only for them to now experience what we see again here in our passage this morning, Acts 12, verse 1. What happened here? See, here in this moment, Herod, King Herod, decided to have a full-on attack against the church, and specifically against the leaders of the church. Talk about an emotional whiplash. Feelings of highs and lows, highs and lows, back and forth. And I have no doubt that because of this, the church felt absolutely just devastated. Maybe a little emotionless at that point even. They were grieving, they were hurt, they were harmed. But this feeling of devastation wasn't simply hyperbole or an exaggeration of any kind. See, for 10 long years now, up to this point in Acts, from the beginning up until chapter 12, probably about 10 years or so had passed, those in Jerusalem had now suffered increased persecution all for their faith in Christ. Pastor R. Kent Hughes, in his own commentary on this same chapter, describes the church here in Acts 12 as being a beleaguered church. In other words, a church that had been sieged on all sides, attacked by the enemy. This church had suffered under the hands of Herod Agrippa for a good while now, and here he just happened to haphazardly decide to kill off the leaders of the church, starting with James, the brother of John, one of, again, the apostles, and then a few other unnamed, most likely leaders, as it refers to them here. But then finally Peter, whose head was now about to be soon on the chopping block. And it's interesting to note that James himself wasn't just put to death. He was put to death, as the text says, by the sword. And this speaks volumes. Why? Because in that day, to be put to death by the sword, that form of execution, it was reserved for those who, historically speaking, were either insurrectionists or murderers or even apostates against the people, the religion there. And so essentially what Herod was saying to the people, the Jewish people around him, was, yeah, these Christians, they're apostates. James, the apostle, one of their leaders, he's against us. And so he opened up the doors of violence against the church in this way. 
Verse 3, though, says this about the Jews. It says that the Jews were pleased by this. Can you imagine being in their position? Here your dear friend James, someone who's taught you the word of God, has been killed by the sword, called out as an apostate, likened with murderers, and now you yourselves are also identified with that, called, in essence, an apostate before the watching world. And so as a result, the Jewish culture turned against the church. Death was now upon the church. And they were at the mercy of, humanly speaking, a despotic, crazy king, Herod Agrippa. And Herod Agrippa was one who knew the political game all too well. And at this point now in our text, it wasn't just James, it wasn't just the unnamed leaders there as well. It was now Peter who was up next. His head was next. Now, so great was the affliction that the church faced here that Luke, the human writer of Acts, inspired by God himself, describes Herod's actions against the church as being utterly and purposefully harmful. How do we know that? Well, the word for harm is used right here in verse 1. It's translated here as violent hands. But that word violence, it's only used a handful of times, no pun intended, uh, within the rest of the New Testament. Five times to be exact. And every time it's used, it's used to bring to mind this idea of affliction or harm, devastation. It was used earlier when we saw how Pharaoh afflicted the people of Israel when Stephen was about to be martyred. And it's used later on in Scripture to describe utter harm against God's people. But it's even used later on in the writings of Peter and others to describe wickedness that promotes an evil mindset and saturates the mind with evil within even the lives of us. And so Herod was out to harm and afflict violently the church. And to make matters worse, their hands, the hands of the church themselves, were figuratively tied up behind their backs. What could they do in this moment? They didn't have much. I mean, if they tried to even, let's say, get their friend out of prison, plan a jailbreak of sorts, they would be met by, how the text says, four squads of soldiers, four soldiers each, at any given time of the day. Two soldiers chained literally to Peter on his left and on his right, and two right there at the front of his own door, his cell. And so he was heavily guarded. There was no chance of a prison break. So what about diplomacy? What could the church have done? Could they have spoken some sense into the crazy King Herod? No, because in our context, we see here that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was going on, followed up by the Passover. This was a time of celebration in which there was nothing judicial that could be done And so Peter's public execution before the hands of the watching world was all but guaranteed by this point. So what happened? We see here in verse 5, essentially, that the church was in earnest pain, reeling in their pain. And all they could do was give themselves to prayer in accordance with Psalm 109 as they prayed for their enemies and they prayed for the release of their friend. Perhaps this morning you can relate to the same feeling, this feeling of being without hope. Perhaps you feel like your energy is depleted, like your charisma has been just sapped, 
like your body just feels physically tired. Perhaps your mind has run itself into the ground. Anxious toil has become your daily bread of sorts. Well, what caused this to be? Perhaps it was something of the nature that something that was near or dear has been lost in your life. Perhaps the intimacy of a close friendship has just vanished away from you. Perhaps confidence in future events have just shifted away from you in the moment. And all of a sudden, you find yourself feeling lost without hope. Perhaps when it comes to your own work, you feel like the success that you dreamed of is not bearing fruit. Whatever the case might be, unto what in these moments, whether they be within your own soul or something outside of it that is plaguing it, what in these moments are you lifting up your eyes to? To what are you holding out hope? See, more often than not, we often in these moments of feeling desperate, defeated, depleted, often run to temporary deliverances. It's only natural for us to reach out to them and try to seek refuge in those things, whether they come in the form of restored relationships or locked-in calendar dates or recognition of your own achievements. But lasting sustenance in these things never really does last, does it? Lasting sustenance, rather, is only found as believers in communion with God. As Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? And how does he answer it? He says, my help comes from the Lord, the maker, creator of heaven and earth. See, Scripture itself trains us to look above our temporary deliverances, the things that we often are prone to grasp onto in the moments of our weakness, and rather to see the Lord as our only help. It's in these moments of weakness that our prayers often become simple and childlike. Lord, help me. God, help. Well, if you are a believer in Christ, know that there is beauty in the midst of the brokenness that you face. See, rather than letting you find temporary satisfaction in these lesser things, the Lord is drawing you near in the midst of these things to his Father's heart. The Lord is a jealous God over you. And it's in these times of feeling our utter weaknesses before God that his strength is personally felt as our all-sufficiency. It's in these times that his joy becomes known to us as our sole fortress of protection. And it's in these times that our grip upon these lesser things begins to unravel. And so, friends, could there be anything more beautiful in the sight of God than the death of these idols that we often cling to? These things that we try to prop up as functional saviors in our own lives. This is why James, in chapter 1 of his letter to the church, says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. See, this is the exact same kind of holistic, steadfast faith that the Lord was propagating amongst the church here in Acts 12. 
It wasn't a work of their own doing, but it was rather his grace being poured out upon them in this time, this time when they were forced to commune with him and no one else. See, these people were heartbroken over their dear friend, Peter. And so it says here that earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, the word for earnest prayer here, earnest, is especially important. It's only used a couple times throughout Scripture. And here, it has this connotation of a stretching, a straining within the soul, and even a yearning for God to do something, to act. And so, in essence, the souls of this people, this broken people, were crying out to God in anguish. And all the while, what was happening around them in Jerusalem? This feast of unleavened bread was going on. The city around them was celebrating. Not only celebrating the feast, but even celebrating in some way, probably, that Peter himself was up next. That the church was about to be shut down in some ways. And so this feast of unleavened bread was on. For seven days then, according to Exodus 12 and 13, as God had established with his people, Israel, they would be reminded of the Lord's rescuing hand, followed by the Passover meal. Do you see the irony in this? See, ironically enough, while the Jews themselves within the entire city were celebrating and observing the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven long days and preparing themselves for the Passover meal, they themselves were being reminded of God's rescue of their people 1,500 years ago from the hands of the Egyptian captors. And yet all the while, the church was feeling oppressed by a different kind of captor here. See, the church couldn't help but think of Peter, who himself was captured there by the oppressors, Herod and others. Likely, 10 years, almost to be exact, had passed since the time that Christ himself was arrested, also during the same week of unleavened bread, the time of Passover. Ironically enough, this event here in Acts 12 most likely took place probably in AD 43, maybe AD 44, AD 44 at the very latest. But 10 years earlier, Christ had been arrested during the same time. And here Peter, who also was arrested during the same week of Passover in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was made now to share in the sufferings of Christ. Ten years prior, Christ had been earnestly praying for his own during the same week in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying for his own that they would be sanctified in the truth. And now ten years later, these prayers were being fulfilled in their midst. They were being sanctified in the midst of these events. Ten years prior, Christ, the true Passover lamb, would suffer for the sins of his people and provide full forgiveness of their sin by offering his life and nothing less in their place. And now, here, in this time, fast-forwarding, the church had no one to lean upon except Christ, who was their mediator. Well, this brings us to our second point. Again, we see not only a visible praying church here, especially in verse 5, but we also see a praying Christ acting and operating behind the scenes here in Acts 12. Christ alone, the only mediator between God and man who intercedes for his people day in and day out. 
And we see here that Christ, in effect, did not only serve as a mediator in his humiliation, as we just confessed earlier in our catechism, but rather we see him now here mediating on the church's behalf in his state of exaltation. Isn't this comforting? This wonderful gospel truth that the risen Christ sits forevermore at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling and reigning over you, even your hearts. See, Christ is never failing in his reign over you, friends, and he is never ceasing in his praying over you. In him, we have not merely these supplications and the requests and the things that we ask of him, rather we have him. We have his word and we have his doing. For whatever he says, he does. So do you believe now, even now in this moment, that Christ is praying over you? It's so hard to comprehend, isn't it? But if you belong to Christ, if you are a child of God, this infinite God over all the world is even personally invested in you, his son or his daughter. The word of God tells us as much. For as Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet is without sin. And praise God for that. See, what Christ has purchased for us upon the cross, this perfect, unbridled communion with God the Father through him, this he applies to us. And he reminds us of this in our times of need. But what exactly does then Christ speak to us and speak over us as he's interceding or praying over us at all times? What exactly is it? Well, in essence, he speaks over us the gospel, the truth of his word, his redemption, and all of the benefits that flow out of the gospel itself. But as simple as it sounds, what exactly is the gospel then? <laughs> See, in our world, especially in modern evangelicalism, it's become so common to use the word gospel and use it loosely that we often lose sight of the actual power and the meaning of the gospel itself. Is the gospel social justice or behavior modification or some kind of political persuasion? No, it's so much more grand than that. The gospel is so neatly summarized even in 1 Corinthians 15, verse three through four. This wonderful doctrinal truth that Christ died. But not just that he died, but that he died for our sins. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. But see, it's really nothing new that not only our culture, but even we ourselves often wrestle with what actually is the gospel and how does that then apply to our lives. We need to be careful to not misappropriate the gospel. It's so easy for us here in the United States even, especially it's just in our DNA as a nation, to become overly infatuated with self-perceived ideas of piety or morality, looking good in front of other people, and even trying to be more concerned about looking as if we're doing the right thing versus actually doing the right thing. And so we need to be so conscientious of this kind of moralistic 
false gospel trapping. We need to bind our thinking to that of God's. This is why uh, Derek led us in the Lord's Prayer earlier. And that's why we, every single week, pray the Lord's Prayer out loud as a church. Because it binds us and it guides us into a right way, as a framework, really, to adore and worship God as we ought. It teaches us what we are to pray for, but furthermore, even how we are to enjoy the living God and the God who speaks to us. So how do we commune with him? Not just in prayer, but how do we hear from God back? Well, we hear from God rightly when we sift every thought that passes through our minds through the lens of Scripture, God's spoken revelation to us. And we hear his voice as his word is ministered to our hearts, again, from Scripture, by the Holy Spirit, as Christ is seen in all of his glory, and as we come to know him. This is why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1 says that we hear the word of God through the prophets of old who had spoken in former times, but also through Christ, the word of God incarnate. So again, though, how does Christ communicate what he is praying to us? How does he speak to us, if you will? Well, he does this by reminding us of all the benefits of the redemption that we have in him. Nothing that is outside of scripture will he ever communicate to you. Only what is bound up in the word of truth. Nothing that our imaginations can conjure up, nothing of our own conjectures or wishful thinking about what we want God to be like, but rather only what his word says about himself. I love the way that the Westminster Confession puts it in chapter 8 of the Confession. It describes that Christ communicates to us through five ways, principally. And just to paraphrase the lengthy section of chapter 8, I want to go ahead and relay this to you, these five ways that Christ speaks to us or communicates this redemption to us. If you're a note taker, I'd recommend jotting down a couple of the key words here. See, Christ speaks to us in the following ways by first letting us know that he is always praying for us. That he's interceding, essentially. Second, by revealing the mysteries of our salvation by his word. Thirdly, by persuading us to believe and to obey him by the power of the Spirit. Fourth, by overcoming whatever stands against us. And finally, by overcoming, or by governing rather, our hearts by his word and by his spirit. Notice then that what Christ does as he prays and intercedes for us is not just then limited to this intellectual ascent. You know, the goal wasn't just for us to come to this place of knowing these wonderful doctrinal truths but to rather come to know the heart of our Father, to come to a place of awe and wonder and worship, especially as he strikes down any idols that we try to place within our own lives in front of him. And yet this doesn't mean that um, he will do this, this idol smashing, if you will, in the ways that we desire. Again, he is a jealous God who's jealous for you. And he often does this through not only breaking our idols, dismantling them and showing them for the worthless gods that they are, but also by, in the meantime, softening our hearts toward his grace. 
See, when the hard times come, whether it be cancer or some kind of physical illness, when the distance in our relationships is felt, when the value of our work is diminished, we are never guaranteed, biblically speaking, an immediate and absolute cure-all in this life. Rather, we are guaranteed His presence, Christ's presence by His Spirit. And so if you are in Christ, know that His prayers are in essence a guarantee over you, for He never stops to pray over you, His beloved. And you are guaranteed His sustenance in those times. Sometimes these answers come swiftly, sometimes they come all too slowly. But he will, in these times of hardship, remind you that he is indeed bringing everything into submission unto him and his lordship. And in that we can take refuge. He wins at the end. As Hebrews 6, 19 through 20 says, we have this, meaning Christ, the hope that is in him, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever. In that, friends, we have hope. <clears throat> now, surely these <clears throat> same truths were communicated to the church in Acts chapter 12. <clears throat> Excuse me. And later in Acts chapter 12, we'll come to see that Peter himself would actually eventually be released. God would answer their prayers in such a way. And even the old maggoty King Herod would eventually bite the dust and literally come to be eaten by worms at the end of his life within just a few short verses. But in the midst of the tension that we see here in these first five verses, where the church was still feeling it, so to speak, Christ still stood over the church, praying for them. And this same Christ stands and watches over you, brother and sister praying for you. Well, do you want to experience this for yourself? If you are not yet a believer in Christ, then in this moment, through his word being opened, he is inviting you to come to himself. For in Christ alone is rescue from the guilt of your sin before a holy God. Christ is the only one who can and who did deal with the sins of his people once for all time. Where we have broken God's law, he completely abided by it. Where we are destitute of anything good that God requires of us in his law, Christ in himself fulfilled it. Where we are defiled, broken by our sin, even rebels against the living God, Christ stood in our place, holy, undefiled, full of grace and truth, even thoroughly furnished himself as our only mediator between us and God. And in his death on the cross, he incurred the penalty for our sin that we deserved. His death in our place. His life given for us. And if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Finally, if you are a believer, I'd like to invite you to learn to cultivate, as a response to these things, an ardent life of prayer before God. The one who loves you and who gave his own son for you. Well, how do we do this? In short, I love this book by Paul Miller, the son of Jack Miller, uh, who wrote this book called A Praying Life, and I highly recommend it. But to summarize what he says, he says this, learn to pray like a child. 
Learn to trust again. Learn to ask of your Father. And in so doing, as we learn to do these three things especially, we'll learn to also then live in our Father's story, not our own. And we'll learn to pray in real life, in good times or the bad. So my prayer for us is that we would move beyond just a mere, again, intellectual ascent of all of these things and move toward the heart of our Father who is in heaven. My hope is that we here at Christ's Covenant will become all the more a praying people, one who is marked by these things, a praying people who stands in light, though, of our faithful, praying Savior over us. With that in mind, let's go ahead and pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are above all and that you are the one who is so majestic and holy. And yet in your own kindness and sheer mercy, you decided to send your son to us who intercedes for us, who interceded in his humiliation upon this, this earth and who even now intercedes for us at your right hand. So God, we thank you that we have a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, a shepherd of our souls, the one who guards us, who protects us, who loves us. We pray all this in his holy name. Amen.